This is Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Welcome back to the show, folks. This is your host, John Gower, and I'm joined by Nathan Knight, our tech specialist, robotic overlord, <laughs> um, what? Deep state agent. Deep state agent. <laughs> He's come here all the way from the glorious city of San Francisco, where the cum flows in the streets. <laughs> That's right. How are you enjoying your time back in Tennessee? Middle Tennessee. Yeah, it's good, man. I like the pace of life. It's a lot wetter here. <laughs> it is. It is. It has been for the past week. You notice my yard? Yeah. Yeah. It's squishy. I was supposed to. Well, no, it's very high. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah. grass is very high because I was going to mow it last Wednesday, and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll wait till tomorrow. Yeah. And it's rained since tomorrow, so. Right. Yeah, it's a lot wetter, a lot slower, but I like it. It is like slower. It, so it is slower. It's more European in that way. Yeah, actually. It is. It definitely is. It is. And I like that, and I'm sick of these fucks out where you currently live, yeah. and... L.A. and New York, yeah, telling us that we're falling behind. Right. I don't we're, know. Man. We are behind, and we intend to stay behind. <laughs> we'll let y'all just pick up the front line, right. the avant-garde. I mean, I kind of, I, I somehow surrounded myself with people who are kind of retirement age, or they live like they're retired. So it is kind of slower, actually. It's just slower in a different way because people are active. I think probably more active, but. It's like their hobbies. Right. I, we could be more active here. Yeah. It's like hobbies usually... The obesity is <laughs> yeah. through the roof. Yeah. Like, or I guess... the floor, I guess you'd have to say. I guess here, there, there are definitely... There's sports players, but sports here is like a profession, even if you're an amateur. It's like they take it real seriously. But there, it's like... Yeah, it's very... It's a pastime. Machismo. Oh, yeah. Here, yeah. For sure. But there it's like they people ski and ride bikes. As right, a they're hobby. just hobbyists. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's super active, actually. Yeah, like Heather Hying. What did you say? Like Heather Hying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Out paddleboarding on the river. When yeah, right, like, right. Okay. Adventure, yeah. I always, I don't know. There's something about those people. I was listening to um, the red, newest Red Scare episode with Tim Dillon. Yeah. And they were talking about how people that go to national parks are psychopaths. <laughs> And I was like, man, I do agree. Like, I'd like nature. Mm. I like to go out in nature occasionally. Yeah. I like to be active. I, mm -hmm. You know, I like to take care of myself. But people that like, I don't know, like my, my ex, my first boyfriend is the kind of person that owns like six kayaks. They pile up in his garage. He like has to go out every weekend yeah. to go like on a hike. Or, like, go kayaking. It's like he's trying to escape something. And yeah. I think what these people are trying to escape is what they will do to other people wow. if they're around other people too much. Yeah. Mm, I could see I that. I think they're right. I think they are murderers and rapists. <laughs> it's like return to, like, monk kind of thing. Return to monkey. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe they go out there and, like, strangle small animals or <laughs> what. I don't know. That's entirely possible. I would not rule that out. I mean, I, I like a good national parks. I like state parks too, but... Uh, well, same. Yeah. Same thing. I think something about it being 
advertised so heavily as like state, like public property, it instills some kind of like sense of uh, allegiance or even like a quasi like patriotism where people feel like um, they're in a, they're a part of a bigger community and they start to feel like interesting. They start to feel more attachment to, uh, they start to feel more attachment to ecology in a neoliberal way. Right. So let's let's unpack that ecology in a neoliberal way. So like by neoliberal, you mean it's like organized, there's boundaries put around it. And there is excluded people. There's people, if you're littering, then you deserve to be strangled. Right. If you're smoking, <laughs> right, you yeah. need to something like that. get out of the way. Yeah. If they see you smoking, it like triggers them because they think about the most recent forest fire <laughs> and then all the bad, you know, right, like that kind right. of thing. And it's more of like a policing. It's like a little brother type of thing, the distributed little brother. I was talking to some friends about that uh, the other day. We, you know, so they're petty authoritarians. Exactly. Yeah, that's what uh, exactly what a little brother is. The distributed little brother network. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the big brother. Even today, it's still a meme that's people are talking about. But uh, it's the little brother that's going to be uh, the end of us or maybe, well, I yeah. Know. I mean, like if you look at the, I was reading, um, what was it? maybe Han it wasn't Hannah Arendt, okay. but it was someone writing about, it was one of the books on the, on the, on the, the, the Nazi mm -hmm. takeover. And they were just describing mm -hmm. how most of what happened was neighbors ratting on neighbors, children ratting on their parents, children ratting on the, the parents of their friends, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't right. They wouldn't have accomplished anything if people hadn't been little snitches. Yeah, snitches. And now we're all being encouraged to be snitches. And it's like, hey. Yeah. Hey. Probably shouldn't encourage that Yeah, mentality. But no, no, no. In San Francisco, man, it's full, like, Soviet level. Like, uh, I, I, I was going to say, you know, the I think there's an obvious parallel with the Nazi rise of the nazis but also it's very alive and i think it's written about a lot in uh the soviet union too oh yeah relied on that heavily yeah yeah i mean modern totalitarianism is that and yeah you know i mean you can look back at 18th century france the nobility would and aristocracy were able to put their friends and neighbors and family members in royal prisons mm -hmm. with just a letter from the king, the lettre de cachet, they called them. Mm. Just by, it was kind of the the, the precursor to um, committing somebody. It's like a very regal snitching. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's, it's you know, it's like, ugh, they're actually a threat to the family name. Right. We need them which, sequestered. Which, I mean, the corporation and even the state, you know, is an extension of the family too. So it's like this kind of familial sense of survival you want to protect the image and everything right 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 it's there's a reputation to be um to be defended and upheld right yeah yeah, yeah. like nike that's why um god i was watching youtube last night there's um, a really great channel called cinema tyler tyler okay. is in the name tyler mm -hmm. and it's this cinephile that does these really good like short uh, documentaries on all, all of Stanley Kubrick's films, uh, some of Scorsese's films. He's mm -hmm. but he's he's really 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 interesting little videos, and the ads that were popping up were like these 
Like one of them was uh, oh, shit. I can't. I can't remember what the company was. It was like Johnson and Johnson, or like um, what? Just a big, like not necessarily pharmaceutical, but big, you know, chemical company. Dupont or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or one of their subsidiaries, like one of the more name brands that you would recognize. Mm-hmm. And it was like all these, you know, a bunch of you know really diverse people, like. Okay, I do remember one that kept popping up. It's a new one that I've been seeing. It's a Google new Google phone, I think. Okay. And it's like all these cartoon people of varying colors of brown dancing around like boop doop doo mm-hmm. And there's and there's these like amateur musicians singing songs about all of the benefits of this new Google phone that are really bad. It's like Say goodbye to roaming charges. Say goodbye to privacy invasion. And Uh, then it's like, say hello to the new phone or some gay (laughs) shit like that. And it's like, what? Your big brother is literally saying, say goodbye to privacy invasions. Like, what is? No. Right. No. Except for the ubiquitous privacy invasion that is the phone. No, that is the phone. And you want to you want to say goodbye? You want to say goodbye to that? Smash it with a hammer. Yeah, right. And then throw it in a lake. Well, what do you make of the... Uh, of and then Apple? bomb the lake. Right. <laughs> yeah. What do you, so what do you make of uh, the the shift in marketing that's happened uh, in Apple recently with uh, branding themselves as the, the company of the people, so to speak, that's going to be the one that really looks out for its consumers Because I know you can write it off easily as marketing BS, and to an extent that's obvious, but there are documented cases where they've stood up, so to speak, to the U.S. government, like with the iMessage thing that happened in the San Bernardino shooting, I think. Right, right. Um, Where they wouldn't, like the government was trying to get them to hack the phone, and they were like, no, we're not going to give you access to the phone, it's private. and they won that case, and it was defended, but shortly after that, and uh, somewhat coincidentally, you might say, an Israeli company uh, announced that they were able to, if they had physical access to a phone, they could decrypt the messages. Right. And so... Was that Pegasus? I don't think so. Uh, I don't remember the name, but... Okay. Well, Pegasus, I thought, was a government project in the U.S., but this was Israeli... And it was Pegasus, the Pegasus spyware... Okay. That's... That is apparently was on all of our phones until the most recent Apple update. Wow. Yeah. iOS 15? I, 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 you would know better than I. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, th- that was an Israeli company. I don't okay. think it was, a, I don't think it was affiliated with the Israeli government necessarily, but. Well, that's, I mean, like security and, uh, you know, cybersecurity and that kind of stuff is uh, kind of a booming industry over there. I think it's it, intertwined with, just like it is in the U.S. with the, uh, the intelligence, you know, agencies there. Right. But uh, this was actually more of a hardware kind of operation. They actually didn't okay, make okay. their they didn't make software to uh, ship out, as far as I know. But they just uh, brute force hacked the phones with access to them. And uh, actually, Android so they raped the phone. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> there was a collective effort. Uh, it was initiation ceremony. Um, <laughs> no, they. Uh, so they actually have been doing this. That, or they've had the ability to do this for Android phones for a while, but iPhone is so locked down and proprietary right, right. and everything that it was. It makes it's a bigger headline when they do it to Apple phones, hmm. and uh, they were able to with physical access. 
physical access. Um, yeah, I mean, if someone gets arrested, obviously they have physical access to your phone, right? Unless you smash it or whatever. But so, yeah, my or question through magnets. Uh, does that still work? Nah, you'd have to have really strong magnets or something that like ones that would kill you. It wouldn't. Not something that would kill you, but it'd have to be something special. Yeah, to really mess up the phone, probably. I mean, to my knowledge, I'm not a hardware guy. I'm a software guy, but still. Um, I was just wondering what you thought about the marketing turn, though, because it seems to be pretty effective on people. I have not seen any Apple marketing in a long time. And maybe that's because I, like, every time I would see an Apple ad, I would be, like, not interested or whatever. Could I interest you in... <laughs> no, um, and now that he's in the room, the sales start. Um, it's just like a root, a subroutine turns on, right, and I just right, like right. change posture and everything. Um, My eyes no, change color. I, I the, the the thing in marketing that I've noticed, and this has been going on for probably five or six years now, is like the. I guess ever since. Um, what Pixar became so ubiquitous mm-hmm. and that, you know, CGI people yeah. that are kind of, that are really like buffoonish looking and mm-hmm. sort of pathetic looking, mm-hmm. honestly, yeah. like very round and like shiny yeah. and that like that's become the marketing for. I think the term is neotenous. Neotenous. Well, that's like the that's the term for like a youthful looking person or like youthful traits. OK, so it. It seems to be. It's actually. I mean, more, they're not necessarily youthful. They're like they're pathetic. I, yeah. I call the aesthetic patheticism, <laughs> because because the people look like sort of helpless and like they're like bug eyed and well, like. That's Boo! those are neotenous traits. It's like a baby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you know, um, actually, like Kroger. Th- all of Kroger's branding is like that now. Really. All of what's like, like, the, like the Google commercial I saw last night was like that. Well, well that's that's kind of sweeping Silicon Valley. So that's a uh, human of flat design. What is it called? Human of flat design is like this really, it's almost like pastel and like two dimensional and flat. Right. But then another, what you're talking about is like the Memojis or whatever. And those are like the Disney Pixar looking characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there are less, there are more charitable explanations of why those are popular. One being that rendering those kind of 3D um, characters is actually more efficient in, in terms of, you know, just the graphics, like rendering them. Um, whereas like a more, more efficient than hiring actors and oh, well, shooting an actual commercial. That's an angle on it. I think that could be true too. But what I was referring to is just the com- computation, like physically just generating right. those images rather than like real textures and like variation in real faces. Well, yeah. And also they, they don't want to do that because you get into that, the uncanny valley, valley territory where that's probably true too, you, yeah. like the polar experts, things look too real and you're like, Ooh, yeah, like, yeah. And the deep, and it's like almost could be a deep fake at that point or something. Right, I don't right, know. right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole issue in and of itself. But yeah, I, I the whole, it's this very childish, like, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's what is, when it's so sinister is when it's companies like Google, like making everybody look like a bunch of fucking, like, just happy babies bouncing around in a field <laughs> with rainbows shining down on them. It's like, what? Right. Yeah. You're, you're reading my emails, guys. Like, right. don't stop. And you're working with defense contractors, right? And stuff, right. Right. <laughs> it's like, like wonder... you you probably were your technology probably helped that drone strike that killed those civilians. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. In Afghanistan. 
Yeah, Google has... Just to date this, because if you listen five years from now, people will probably think yeah. your neighbors down the street. <laughs> or any of the past 20 years, drone strikes, yeah, but... Um, yeah, man, uh, I don't know what's up with that design. I think, I mean, there's the whole wave in Japan of designing robot humanoid robotics with right. a, a very approachable, like... Uh, What's that Wall-E type of, or like you know, DreamWorks, Pixar type of uh-huh. appearance? It's uh, the idea is just to make the technology seem less and less intrusive and more right. friendly. And I think generally, generally in Japan at least, it's been it's a positive thing because it it is um, you know I think in in Japan. I mean, for context, I lived in Japan for a while, and I think that. Um, I think they have a very different relationship to technology and they don't see it as even uh, quite separate from humanity in the same way. They just see it as like a continuous stream of beings or maybe intelligence or something or like an extension. Right, right. Almost where where we're starting to get in the West, you know? But I think it comes from the roots of animism in Shinto. Um, Animism being? um, It's like where you think everything is anime and <laughs> no it's um well good you won't be surprised when you see my browsing history <laughs> just like hentai top to bottom right <laughs> no like like animism like like everything is animate everything is yeah is, like has a soul right the soul is, is or everything has a has a soul to different degrees so for example okay. large um large collections of kami like god would be in like grant or like anything that inspires awe in you when you encounter it in nature mm-hmm. in the natural world so a waterfall a right. giant tree boulders you know volcanoes especially yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff like that they so have a lot of experience with those yeah exactly <laughs> they yeah man that's what fuels the onsens yeah but so is, that that those things have greater soul they have like a strong, I guess you could say like the way I've heard it described is like a greater collection or a stronger, denser collection of whatever it is, like an essence of right, right, right. God, you know, and humans, of course, have that too, yeah. but humans aren't like as unique in that sense, I think, in that worldview. Right, right, you know right. I mean? It's not the, the, um, the Western view of yeah. the soul versus the body, the mm-hmm. spiritual versus the material. Right, yeah, yeah. All material is spiritual in a certain sense, which, I mean, Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. Like, it doesn't... Yeah. You know, I've always kind of entertained that heresy in in my mind. Like... Me too. I think so. God is part of the God. Like, if if you are a purely materialistic person Mm -hmm. or thinker, you, you realize that we are made of all the same things that everything else around us is made of. Right. We're just different composition of it, mm-hmm. different organization of it. Different arrangement, yeah. Right. And to say, you know, to say that we, you know, there's there's an argument to be had for consciousness, mm-hmm. about consciousness, what consciousness is. Yeah. But I don't think that necessarily, I think, I think soul is something very different than consciousness. Like human beings are conscious. Is a tree conscious? I don't know. No one does. Mm-hmm. But yeah, do I have a soul? Yes. Does a tree have a soul? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you take that, I mean, I think that results from 
just the naive approach to the world and nature pre-scientific. So like pre some highly effective and useful story about consciousness. If you look at it without that story and that apparatus of understanding, then you you could easily come to the conclusion that, oh yeah, everything alive, these things are animated in the same way that humans are, even if they look different. Mm-hmm. But what that the advantage of that in my experience is that people respect even inanimate objects with a, a kind of sacredness. Right, absolutely. That I think is is very nice and, and good. And I think I, is very I think is uh, direly lacking in our culture. Yeah, yeah. Especially from the atheistic, uh, materialistic types well, that this that is, really are, have dominated our culture since the seventies. Yeah, yeah. This is the overlap, the intersection of like that those roots of Japanese culture and Heidegger that I see because the standing. Uh-oh. The sta- he said the H word. <laughs> Heil Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know the standing reserve. I think doesn't it. You don't get to the standing reserve worldview as readily. What, in, is, what is, you're gonna have to unpack that. <laughs> standing reserve. I'm gonna have to check myself in on that one. Yeah, I'm gonna check myself in. Um, thanks for checking me in on that. So I think that uh, the standing reserve is basically like seeing inert matter and uh, just this homogenous, um, undifferentiated uh, warehouse of of fuel and materials. Right. Uh, and seeing the world that way, all of the natural world. And uh, you can see the seeds of like environmentalism in that Heideggerian view, which I never really connected, but the whole hippie movement and stuff, I think, was connected to Heidegger and then existentialism after that. But in Japan, I think when you come at the world with that approach, you're not as likely to just uh, force your will on nature and, and not really care about how it fits into the greater picture. And you don't approach things with the same kind of respect. Right. from the more Western view. But uh, it's more effective, uh, apparently, in certain ways, to uh, approach the world in that very uh, callous way, I guess you could say. The, um, the, Western. the Western way? Yeah. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's. I don't think so. Right. I, like, I, perhaps economically mm-hmm. it's been more effective. And, you know, as long as we're in this sort of zero-sum game with some other nation or yeah. some other economic power, like mm-hmm. Russia in the Cold War or China now. Right. I don't think there's a way to break that. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? That uh, hegemony mm-hmm. that that kind of worldview has right. in America and the West. Hmm. But, I mean, even, even if you just consider, you know, I've been on this for a while now. Like, if you just consider, like, the towns, the, 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 the damage, not damage, the, the things we've already built as human beings, right? Like cities, towns. Mm-hmm. If you look at the way America treats those, it's currently in the process of destroying all of its major cities and building new shit right in the in the spot, in the place that it had built an old right. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even that respect towards that human made man-made structure mm-hmm. would be nice to go, Hey, wait, look, it may be economically more... We, there may be a bigger profit margin mm-hmm. if we knock it down and build a new one. Right. But there's an aesthetic that we're losing when we do that. Yeah. There's a... There's a... 
there's a lot of, I mean, if you want to say like in a Hinduistic way, like there's a mm-hmm. lot of collective memory mm-hmm. within those walls that sure. we're destroying and we're building something new. And yeah, I mean, the Red Scare Girls always refer to think like refer to a lot of different aspects of America as sort of built on an Indian burial ground. That's funny you say that. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a sense that that's kind of. I mean, I don't I don't know who else out there is experiencing like this <laughs> sort of just like omnipresent dread mm-hmm. that something very bad is about to happen and it's going to come in the form of some sort of dissolution or downfall or mm-hmm. crumbling of yeah the civilization that we know you know maybe not is is maybe i'm being a little bit hyperbolic but like yeah i think no i definitely feel that in the air i don't know where exactly it's coming from or what it's uh resulting from but i think it is related to it's all those dead indians well <laughs> yeah it's funny my my brother where he lives there's an indian barrel ground over uh on the property of another house and they were saying you can't build over there and that's why and uh, it's, well, also, yeah, the, the, it's the, also a flood zone though. they made a movie about that it's called poltergeist you don't oh really yeah I, i've heard of poltergeist i know about it you never saw poltergeist i've never seen it yeah man I'm very uncultured we'll have to watch that, that tonight sense. okay probably not but okay <laughs> it's it's one of those movies best seen as a child and then watched yeah. again with enjoyment i don't know if it would yeah creep you out it's more yeah. of a psychological kind of horror though right not as like mm. shock. Uh, mm. is that Cooper? Yeah. Who is that? Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, oh, Spielberg produced it. Somebody else directed it, but Steven Spielberg's hands are all over that fucking movie. Yeah. It it looks like a Steven Spielberg movie. But yeah, like there. Yeah, that. Is that about Native that, Americans though? Native American. No, spirits? it's just they find out like after they they've been tormented by this poltergeist for right however long they find out their house was built <laughs> on an Indian burial ground. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, I think it's more resulting from like the mounting uh, kind of collective sense of guilt or like um, people feeling bad for having accomplished things or like like anything that is uh, comfortable and uh, luxurious, I think, something like that, like uh, having plenty seems to be associated right, with right. some kind of counterbalance of guilt and like it couldn't have just resulted from anything honest or earnest you know so. yeah and i don't think it does i think because yeah. like in, i think in america we do live not even in a in a state of plenty but a state of like surf surfeit what do you what do you call it uh surplus surplus yeah i would say like, gross excess gross excess and, that's, and most think, of guess, I mean, if you look at it, if you look at it just purely materially, where does most of that gross excess come from? Mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And those people are, you know, you could you could say enslaved. You could say mm-hmm. you, living in a feudal system, and you we don't we don't see it as a feudal system because we don't see it. Yeah, it's, it's like, across the. It's on the other side of the world from us. It's a neatly compartmentalized feudal global order right. or something right yeah and somebody was posting um somebody on twitter posted something about the the shortage like the supply chain issues that mm-hmm. we're starting to see like you know if you go mm-hmm. to the supermarket you'll I mean, invariably see like mm-hmm. shelves without stuff on them yeah and they were like this is a sign of things to come oh right and i was like man you know i think this is actually a point 
where we're going there there is something good that will come of this which is that mm -hmm. Americans will have to see what necessities actually are they'll have to distinguish between necessities and what you could call luxury goods yeah and i'm sorry but um fabric softener that's a luxury <laughs> good yeah totally uh, unnecessary. 20 different brands i went to buy fucking cat litter yeah yesterday mm -hmm. there were 16 different variations of cat litter each one did you know was said to do something different Right. One of them clumped better. One of them uh, contained odors, and you didn't have to change it for six days, <laughs> which is disgusting. Yeah. One of them, it, it, one of them advertised that it slid out of the pan easily. Okay. So you could just like angles. just like let your cat litter box fill up, and then just slide, slide it. it into the garbage can. Uh, the endless innovation of capitalism, right? <laughs> it, I mean, and and like you know, my boomer parents and. Your 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 generic Republican will say things like, "That's just that's just a free market. You yeah. gotta let the free market go." And it's like, yeah. well, right? What what are we doing to ourselves if we have sixteen different varieties of cat litter that all do the same fucking thing? Right. Yeah. And it's a total lack of priority and like what's um, it's all out of context in terms of what's uh, necessary for life and stuff because right. we're we're just so far removed from. Ha needing to survive i mean many of us but at the same time many people are off the rails and very close to that so it's uh right and there's not much understanding and communication between those two you know i classes for lack of a better term i mean right. that's the, that's the term is that the term <laughs> bingo yeah we've i mean and in, 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 in a sense we've been i think a lot of the psychoses or neuroses in america mm -hmm. are and in the west but I think even Europeans have a better grasp on life than we do mm -hmm. is the, is the fact that we are so distant from the actual reality of life, mm -hmm. which is, you know, there are, there are times when you're comfortable. There are times when you're happy. There are times when you feel pleasure, but life also comes with a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of discomfort. Yeah. And we've sort of, you know, we talked about this on the last podcast that, you know, you're getting psychological medications are just numbing you to all of the pain and suffering in life, mm -hmm. but they're also numbing you to the joy and exuberance that you mm. can experience. That's true. Yeah. Limiting. It's like a, like yeah, it's a like threshold. a compressor. Yeah, com exactly. Like a mm -hmm. compressor. Yeah. So you don't get the, uh, vividness but uh, kind of fixes some of your problems. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. You can't really solve the problem only on one side, but we, send, we tend to try to separate it. Like you can just subtract on the bad side. And uh, I guess you can do a low-pass filter though, right? <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> Technically. Technically. We let's, need not low get, let's not get into music production just now. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and like going back to Japanese culture, mm. I, don't know, I don't know a lot about Japanese culture or philosophy, but they had that... With, the thing with the where they they'll like fix a broken pot with gold. Yeah, what yeah. is that called? I actually don't Jabi, remember the term. Wabi, wabi sabi. Well, wabi sabi is a general term for um, this kind of. It's described as like a rustic and combined with like a loneliness or a sense of loneliness. Interesting. Yeah, um, and there it's like an approximation. Like I've never gotten. There's not a precise definition. It's more of like an intuitive thing. But yeah, like rustic, um, you know, 
salt of the earth kind of vibes and earth a lot of earth tones stuff like that and like the an appreciation of imperfection yes very much so asymmetry imperfection i heard i heard a guy uh actually he was a a what do you call that someone who they decide everything that people wear in photo shoots and stuff a stylist right right. stylist for like photo shoots and stuff and he was saying that he was very well read Japanese guy, and he was saying that uh, in Japanese architecture, at least traditional Japanese architecture, they never built, built things symmetrically. Mm-hmm. And the reason uh, they did that is because it, it was modular, and you could always add on parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you plan from the beginning, which um, Western, I think, mindset is, uh, is uh, I don't know, habitually doing, you want to have this grand design from the outset, and it's perfect. But then life moves on, and right. because we're in a temporal, you know, existence, uh, then you have new things you need to add. I mean, I guess you could suppose you add things symmetrically as well, so you just keep building symmetrically. But what usually happens is you add something that's that breaks the symmetry, and then it's ruined, you know. Right, and then right, it's, right. it's a it's like kind of a crisis at that point. But you avoid that with the modular asymmetric design. Yeah. And you can you can kind of see and you can kind of see that in our global politics right now. Oh yeah, in our global sure. economic situation. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, and I do think there's something to be said for. I think there's a lot to be said for the Western aesthetic of mm-hmm. like the frozen moment. Yeah, for like sure. Capturing that perfection. Mm-hmm. I think that's a a noble thing to what strive for or try to. Yeah establish in the world with the knowledge that it it will decay yeah like you know versailles Mm -hmm. is a museum now yeah where commoners trample through the halls and take selfies yeah louis the 14th would not be pleased there are ethnics in my in my (laughs) palace what what are these ethnic minorities doing in my bedroom right um, all up in his bedroom and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it totally. But I, do, I mean, I think it's I think it's reached like a critical mass, and I yeah. do think the like the the idea of wabi sabi or just the you know the mm. just a more generic embracing of change, mm-hmm. organic change. Yeah, would yeah. be would be nice because right now we're seeing a demand for revolutionary radical change. Yeah, yeah. That's coming up against this entrenched uh biopolitics yeah, yeah. <laughs> i had to get us there somehow Buzzword. biopower biopower 2.0 um, new and improved yeah you were you were talking about this article you read yeah so to refresh everybody biopower biopolitics is sort of a, a another way of describing neoliberal economic and political organization in which the basic idea is was after world war ii with the austrian school of economics and later the chicago school of economics the you know the hayek's the milton friedman's was that in order for markets to work um without running amok the way they did in the gilded age and Mm -hmm. later what, what caused world war one and world war ii in their minds you had to sort of clear out a space for in which there were certain rules and a status quo in which 
everyone was able to function freely and trade freely and markets were able to run freely. And that space was to be managed mm. by experts, economic okay. experts, um, biological experts, the literati. economic, uh, e ecological experts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Illuminati. Um, <laughs> well, I was saying literati. <laughs> oh, the literati but, as well. But yeah, the Illuminati. The Illuminati, uh, the <laughs> KKK. No, um, no, yeah. but like, and so the, 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 the reason they call that biopower or biopolitics is because it's the, the, the experts and the sort of super governmental organizations that are designed to manage that, that space of freedom are essentially exercising power over the biological functions of day-to-day -day life mm. within a population. Yeah. And you read this article mm -hmm. by, do you remember? Uh, Do you an remember what it was called? Italian guy. An Italian guy. I remember the article name. It's Biopower 2.0. And Biopower 2.0. Yeah, and essentially what he's talking about is the, I guess you could say, the reflection or the rebirth of uh, biopower and, and biopolitics online, uh, because a lot of what's happened uh, in political discourse, at least in the U.S., I think worldwide though, because you're seeing these kind of bubblings up of, especially on the right wing, uh, so to speak. Um, of these communities online that are looking for a haven or some, I guess, decompression chamber or something like that where they can uh, vent and all this. Right. Um, and you're seeing in the U.S. with the left wing too because you have the, like, DSA and, uh, you know, unironic self-declared uh, communists right. and, and uh, Marxist-Leninists and stuff. They'll mostly be subjugated or, you know, relegated, I guess you'd say, to, um, to online discussions. And um, they're essentially being dehumanized online, you know, and uh, kind of being edged out of the mainstreams of discourse. So you have this public space of discourse, like, say, Twitter or YouTube or whatever, and um, increasingly they're being, I think, aggressively uh, pushed out or uh, let known or notified that they're right. stepping out of line or right. that what they're doing is uh, against the uh, neoliberal hegemon or whatever. Right. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it's funny enough, uh, what we were talking about earlier is the term that's thrown around is kind of the, uh, to make the parallel to the Christian cosmology or worldview, um, you know, the Satan, the pinnacle of evil, in our neoliberal, I think, worldview is uh, is Hitler and the Nazis. So the term that's thrown at them to dehumanize them and the ultimate, you know, dismissal of their right. views, of their rights even, is Nazi. Yeah. So if they're a Nazi, by all means, punch them, kill them, you know. And Nazi comes to mean anyone who disagrees with them or disagrees with what they uh, identify with and as the... Uh, mainstream view or the righteous, you know, right. The side of the, the creator or whatever. Um, and, uh, so they were, yeah, it's a very, it's a religious revival. Very much. Yeah. It's a secular, um, reincarnation. Yeah. Of, well, it's just, it's just, a. I mean, there, I, I look at it in the sense that the religious instinct is just born in, like, in human beings. Every, every human being is born with it. Yeah. Um, and, you express it however mm -hmm. you need to, however, however 
you're culturally mm -hmm. and sociologically conditioned to express it. You know, if you're raised Catholic, you express it one way. If you're raised Buddhist, you express it another way. Yeah. But there is a a certain rigid, a certain. Um, I mean, to me, it sort of come down comes down to faith, like blind faith. Mm -hmm. There, there are certain things you don't question, mm -hmm. and you have the same thing happening in this secular, neoliberal. I wouldn't even. It's I don't. It's not left. It's not right. It's yeah. It's, it's the status quo today. Mm -hmm. That's the best I can I can describe it as. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you yeah if you come out against that, they will brand you evil mm -hmm. they don't necessarily use that word again they'll say they'll call you a nazi right and i think it's because evil or they'll call you a capitalist oh yeah that's a softer one but still yeah that's i mean if you if you use capitalist um in that clearly negative uh connotative fashion i think uh it kind of ousts you as being for example, like a Bernie type democratic socialist. Right, right, right. Or some like an AOC type. But I think the more kind of neutral, even more mainstream way to say it is is Nazi. Fascist. Fascist is a very common yeah. one. So yeah, a fascist is beyond reproach. Like mm -hmm. they don't even get to enter the conversation. And beyond that, their rights are taken away. And if they die, you know, from coronavirus or being shot in the Capitol, right. uh, good. You know, that's yeah. that's that's one less that's, fascist to feed. That's progress, you know. Yeah. We've progressed as a as a species if that happens, which is interesting because the irony of that v extreme hostility, I think, is completely lost on them. Right. You know. Right. Well, it's the same as like you know, they they would call Trump a fascist, mm -hmm. and they would call him a fascist for not protecting people from the coronavirus. Yeah. Right. Which. By what they meant by that was he didn't issue a nationwide lockdown. You know, in a now I'm sorry, but a nationwide lockdown is fascist, right. is fascistic. Yeah, allowing the states to proceed as they, as their democratically elected officials mm -hmm. see fit. Yeah, is democratic republicanism. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to throw the Constitution out. Go ahead and let Joe Biden or whoever start making diktats from above. Yeah. If not, just let your local community decide what they think they should do. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I don't care up. if San Francisco wants to stay locked down. Yeah, yeah. I don't care if fucking Texas wants to reopen and then also ban abortion. <laughs> like it's not my it's not my home. That was like their end one on the uh, reversal of the lockdown. Is like, and we're gonna ban abortion. <laughs> right, right. So, hey guys, remember those lockdowns? They sucked, didn't they? Get behind us, and right, yeah. abortion's gone. <laughs> yeah, just slipped so, out. Did you, did you did you see that one coming? Yeah, it'd be crazy if they uh, just kept pushing that. I mean, it's like you were talking about with the moral panic and the reverse of this. I mean, I think. Uh, there are these. There's this kind of momentum that's uh, that's kind of that's used politically. It's like opportunistically uh, used by politicians. It's called fear. Yeah, uh, fear mongering, and yeah, and it's it's like it's like you share you scare the herd, and then you have a little uh, border collie who's you know out right. there like uh, yipping at their heels, getting them in line. Yeah, and um, 
And then AOC, they, <laughs> AOC as a border collie. <laughs> yeah, who's the who's the Republican? Imagining. Who's the Republican border collie? I don't know. Uh, Dan Crenshaw. Okay, yeah, Crenshaw <laughs> at the border. He's at the border. He's, he's at the border. Yeah, he's got a collar on. No, <laughs> sorry, my sexual fantasies are starting to bleed on this <laughs> podcast. I imagine a, a border collie with an eye patch. That'd be kind of cute. <laughs> that would be adorable. Yeah, it would. That would. Um, yeah, like well, what what I was talking about with the moral panic. We saw I saw this article. Um, let me pull this up. Okay. So this is from the Akron Beacon, Akron Beacon Journal. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's Akron, Ohio. Most that's what Akron is, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, this is directly from this article. The Hudson mayor is asking all five school board members to resign or face possible criminal charges over high school course material that he said a judge called child pornography. Mm-hmm. And there was this viral video that went out of the mayor getting up in front of the school board and saying, essentially, I'm demanding all of your resignations or you will face criminal charges for distributing p- child pornography to your students. Yeah. Now you read on down into this article. What is this child? What are these? What's going on in Akron, Ohio? <laughs> Why are the teachers giving their children child pornography? You wonder. Yeah. Sounds a bit off. Well, what they're referring to is a manual, a writer's writing manual, a sort of uh, style, not a style guide, but a, it's a book, a textbook filled with writing prompts. Mm-hmm. So like a writing prompt would be something like, um, describe your first day of school without mm-hmm. using any n- negative adjectives. I don't know. Okay. It, it just is a little thing to write in, par- in a certain parameter. Right. And... Out of these like 600-something prompts that were in this book that they mm-hmm. had distributed to the students mm-hmm. for them to, you know, get a little inspiration to write on something. Yeah. One of the prompts was, quote, write a sex scene you wouldn't show your mom. And another which said... Hopefully that'd be any sex scene, well, right, by the way. Right. Another <laughs> said, rewrite the sex scene from above into one that you'd let your mom read. <laughs> That's such a strange. It is. It's strange. I'll admit. Yeah. It's strange. What age group is this? Um, I think it's high high schoolers. Okay. Well, high school. I mean. Now, no, 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 no. That's what they were referring to as child pornography. Yeah. That's. And this is what the school, the mayor, is standing up and saying: We are going to, if you do not resign, mm-hmm. we are going to prosecute you for distributing or what? In this case, inciting. Inciting yeah. child pornography. Drumming up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, drumming up child Harvesting. pornography. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. and, and like, I mean, I could understand a parent going, hey, um, this is a weird writing prompt for a public school. And then yeah. going, oh, yeah, sorry. Like, take a Sharpie and mark out those two prompts yeah, from redact, the manuals. Redact them possibly. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, but to, to label it as child pornography. And so. It's bizarre. Pulling out from that. You notice a lot of, like, pedophilia, child pornography, angst, mm-hmm. or um, uh, yeah. anxiety mm-hmm. in the air today. Oh, yeah. It's like, thrown. that term is thrown around in the news all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, 18-year-old girls are accusing 24-year-old guys of grooming them, or like... <laughs> yeah, grooming know, is getting thrown around a lot. Yeah, recently. grooming, getting thrown around. And my my suspicion is that... One, 
the actual pedophiles that were flying around with Jeffrey Epstein and that right. are seating and sitting in our halls of power yeah. are not getting prosecuted. So everyone's just a little bit nervous. Right. Yeah. But my the bigger picture, I think, is that for the past five years, six years, we've had this moral panic that was Donald Trump. Right. And towards the end of Donald Trump's term, realizing that fascism had not been implemented in America and right. that Russia had not interfered in our election and that mm -hmm. all of this was a big uh, nothing burger they had to switch and they switched to a medical panic, which was COVID. Right. And now that everyone's been vaccinated or 75% of Americans have been vaccinated and it appears that the vaccine doesn't really work, but also most people that get COVID aren't like getting very sick or dying from it. Yeah. They're realizing that that panic isn't working anymore and they're reverting to different strains of moral panic this you know child pornography being one i'm not saying that the child pornography panic is taking over america but yeah maybe it could be like a, a second wave of the whole QAnon thing but i've talked to a lot of younger parents who you know when you talk about recent events it's always um it's you know it's on their mind it's in the back of their mind like stories about uh abuse and uh Especially in education, people are getting more and more cynical about that. Right. And yeah, it's a. I mean, it's an ever-present thing, but I, I think especially with the recent, you know, Epstein or Epstein and that story. And well, and I whole... think yeah, and I think parents are finding you know they're willy-nilly giving their kids iPhones and iPads, and right. I had I had I've had several parents mm -hmm. of you know eleven, twelve, thirteen-year-old boys mm -hmm. say to me, man, like. Oh my God, I did not realize my kid was like looking at porn. Yeah. And I was like, Really? Well, if you didn't have a kid, you would totally understand yeah. that a child, an 11, a pubescent <laughs> child with a phone is looking at porn because yeah, it's right. so ubiquitous. Yeah. Everybody knows about it. You're just blinded mm -hmm. because it's your child and you don't think they would do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Not my child. Not my child. So, I mean, that's yeah. probably part of it. You know, that's another thing that's been on my mind related to this topic is that I don't think um, it's it's becoming less and less uh, logistically feasible to stop kids from uh, proliferating, you know, images and videos of themselves. Right. So it's going to come to some kind of standoff, and I don't know where it's going to go legally and where it's going to go I culturally. Say take the fucking phones away from the kids. Yeah, it could come to that. It could come to like a license for, you know, certain technologies or something like right. that, you know. I mean, I mean it we shouldn't it have to. It should be like yeah. if you're a parent and you know that your 11, 12, 13-year-old is capable of taking pictures of their private parts <laughs> and sending them to other kids, yeah. essentially like entering the OnlyFans of child pornography, but they're not getting yeah. paid for it. Right. Like, yeah. You should take the kid's phone away and never give it back. Yeah, rather and than... And when they're 18 years old, they can have what you know, have well, their fucking phone. I think just a, a really sober, a really sober and, and uh, genuine conversation with kids would be enough in most cases. I mean, it's like... Don't, ah. Like a don't drink and drive type of conversation. I mean, that well, would... Well, I've... We had that conversation. Guess how many times I've drunk and drive? <laughs> yeah. Drank and drive? I think, yeah, drank and drive. Right. Sure. Drinking and... Maybe my participles drunken. confused. 
Um, I mean, like my parents talked to me about different stuff like that. And I, I think I heeded their advice. It, it's, uh, I mean, but the thing is the parents aren't, aren't always there. So then it enters the realm of public education and sexual things have been very contentious as you've right. just started this whole right. topic <laughs> right. about, you know, anything education is some kind of abuse or brainwashing. And then lack of education is, is going to result in probably a lot worse things to be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, a license for a phone sounds ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think... I, that's the thing is I don't think it should be a, a government or a, Top an down. institutionalized yeah, yeah. yeah. thing. I think it's uh, like... to if, if every parent listening to this mm -hmm. told every other parent, your 11-year-old, if he has a phone, and mm -hmm. it's going to be more common among dudes, let's sure. be honest. Yeah. If, you, if he has a phone and he has it, when you're not around, he's going to see porn on it, even in, whether you like it or not. Even if it's accidental, I mean, I could right. easily see accidentally stumbling on it, and yeah, it's a uh, it's kind of a hazard. I'm not sure what's going to happen. You know, these countries that have uh, bans, like South Korea bans pornography. I don't know if you knew that, but I did not know that. I think they do it specifically for this purpose because they realize how ubiquitous it is and how easy it is to like stumble upon things accidentally or be exposed to things accidentally that they don't even, I mean, of course, maybe they want to on some level, but they didn't intend to. Right. You know, they're not intentionally seeking it out right. or getting involved. Well, and I, I mean, this goes back to a conversation we had, uh, I think with Freya West. Yeah. Okay. On this podcast mm -hmm. about like, you know, I don't think pornography should be censored. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should be banned. Mm -hmm. I don't think, children should be using the technology that makes it available to them. Okay. Like I, what I like, we were, we were talking about social media and such and how people were getting banned from social media for saying the wrong, like <clears throat> you were saying earlier, like being pushed out of the mainstream conversation right? because you don't have the right views or you have views that are quote unquote dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You're treating everybody on social media as though they're children. As right. they're super highly impressionable and unable to encounter information without having some violent reaction. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, I would rather everybody be treated like adults on social media mm -hmm. and keep the kids off of social media. Yeah. You know, if you're if you can't vote until you're 18, if you can't drink until you're 21, mm -hmm. if you can't if I can't have sex with somebody under the age of 18, they shouldn't be on social media. <laughs> that's how I look that's at a, it. That's a good way of delimiting it. Um, yeah, that's a I truly mean, horrible way of delimiting it. But, <laughs> but. I, think, uh, I think that um, it should never be banned, like you said, from a top-down standpoint, but it should be de facto banned culturally in a way. You know what I mean? So Right. I mean, like abortion. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, abortion should never be... Sorry, lady listeners. So, so okay. Yeah, so not banned. No, but, not illegal. Yeah, yeah. Not... Well, you know, I think in some countries abortion is handled like um, it can't be... It can't be chosen by the individual, but it can be um, recommended or approved by the medical professional. See, I don't like that either because okay. I just thought that was an interesting I mean, approach. Like though. going back to biopower, that puts the medical professional in such a powerful position. Sure. 
It does. Over your citizenry, that mm-hmm. the medical profession essentially becomes an arm of the government. But you know what we're the case we're in now with software actually is we have this with software. Yes. Okay. We have a section of the professional world that is essentially entirely unregulated and uh, like the Wild West in a sense. And they're having a massive impact and massive influence, uh, arguably just as strong or as important as the medical professionals or legal, oh, yeah. legal professionals. And they're just not regulated at all. And some people, more maybe libertarian capitalist, fascist, might I say, minded people would say um, that's why it's been so effective and that's why we're we're on top of the world in terms of innovation, so to speak, in, right, in right. software. Um, I mean, even hardware is more regulated way more than software. Uh, think about the software that was involved in those flights that uh, crashed inexplicably. Like they, the, the study they did into it was, uh, it was a software glitch. So, and this is an unregulated... When was this? Uh, probably about three years ago. There was the okay. black box like sensors and uh-huh. uh, 747 or something. And it crashed and they did a st- study into it and it was attributed to the software. Hmm. And I was talking with another software developer and he was saying that he thinks this is how software gets regulated. This is the path to regulation is you get some high profile crashes or people die and then you start to get it regulated. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Actually. I think right. someday, you know, like electricians are licensed right? and you have to be operating under a license of a licensed electrician, even if you're not licensed yourself. So I could see a software future like that. Well, what's, I guess what's frustrating to me is that the software uh, companies don't regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't say, Hey, let's take a step back, look at the morals, look at the ethics of what we're doing here mm-hmm. and listen to, you know, the, all those fuckers that jumped on that, um, social, the social dilemma documentary, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, which was sort of annoying because they had built this technology to be addictive, to be psychologically disruptive, to be sociologically disruptive. Yeah. And then they were like, well, now that I've done that, I'm going to go whistle blow. It's like a Howard Zinn arc. It's like, I'm going to bomb right. Europe and then I'm going to come back and demonize it right, for right, the right. next 40 years. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it, but, but why are this, why are the tech companies not heeding this, like their own, I mean, do they not have consciences? Are they all just Spurgs? Is that, I mean, it, that's, <laughs> a, that's a legitimate question. Are they all just like, so, so like, well, you like know, autistic that they don't. Yeah. understand what they're what the problems they're causing that's the case and uh that's sometimes the case it's like their idealism uh kind of blinds them to the negative impacts of what they're doing but i would say because there's a lot of utopians and like idealism in right, silicon right. valley of course and it's like a childish kind of little boy playing with trains type of utopian <laughs> idealism which is in a way it's a beautiful thing because they've sometimes solved really difficult problems and done great things, but there are negative impacts. And I think, um, I think actually, I mean, I think net negative impacts. Yeah. Arguably. Like, yeah. I, we were pretty good without Facebook, you know, we were but, great. Yeah. We were fine. <laughs> no one needed it. No one needed it. Yeah. And I mean, for all the good things, yeah, there's probably 10 bad things, I guess, 10 negative factors. But what I was going to say to, to, uh, reference, uh, a Marxist term, I think it actually might have something to do with, uh, alienation from the product of your work as an individual right. software developer. I don't really have a full understanding 
even of all the the internal processes and mechanisms happening or at work, you know, in the in the sprawling mass of bureaucracy that I'm a part of. Um, and then beyond that, uh, to critique a little bit the capitalist mechanisms, I'm just trying to get uh, bread. You know, I'm just trying right. to uh, provide for a family. And currently that's one of the best ways to do it is to go into software and people go in, especially people from other countries or from places where they had no hope of making that much money. They go into it and they're saying... He's talking about Indians. <laughs> I mean... H-1B, you know, visa yeah. holders, if uh, I could completely imagine me being in the same scenario, I'm working abroad for, uh, you know, some nefarious corporation that's, you know, developing missile technology or something like that, but it's right. a good living and I'm living my best and life. And all I'm you doing, know? I'm just making the, yeah. the, the software that opens this little... It's 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 in in the I don't know I, it's I like have no the, idea how missile defense technology works but <laughs> it's like the uh, it's like you're the, saying I should go get a job working on the Iron Dome <laughs> is what you're saying <laughs> that, that would be a fun. lucrative path forward sounds sounds fun um, Iron Dome it's such a colorful that name. is such a great name yeah that like, a, for, for those of you who are retarded we're talking about <laughs> Israel's uh, missile defense system yeah. Um, you have to wonder why uh, everyone wants them out. <laughs> um, I mean, so what sorry. I'm saying is you're alienated from the product of your of your labor in that sense, and uh, then you feel so less... So you, you don't see the consequences, yes. is what and you're you, saying? Even if you do see them, you feel less responsible for it, because the responsibility is uh, dispersed, and it's so diluted. Right, right, right. So it's like you have these spurgy or whatever, like reptilian... Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> lords of the estates, and they're making all the decisions, so they should be. Held this is coming from someone in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Reptilian <laughs> is his word to describe them. So uh, you're you're just distanced from the product of your work, and you have your personal concerns, and those are like compartmentalized and separated neatly. And um, you know, and you have a lot of people who have no real concern at all for the direction of the country. I mean, it's really just like a a salt mine for them to. Uh, to make their uh, to make their earnings and and uh, ultimately maybe go home or if they have to that they, they could and then they're not really um, they're I, I guess you could say they're not going down with the ship if it goes down you know what I mean right so this okay uh, recent guest on this podcast mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the first episode with Ray Fox mm -hmm. um, he was talking about we were talking about monarchists and Come. how monarchists still exists today. Sure. And he pointed out that there's there's this uh what, not group, but like there's several of these really Twitter famous um sort of techno monarchists. Okay. On yeah. on Twitter and on uh other social media where they're uh -huh. they sort of advocate for like a the tech companies sort of assuming the powers of government in a monarchical sense. Have yeah. you, are these, are these ideas being floated around you at all? No, I mean, in my little community, everyone has the kind of consensus of, um, the neoliberal kind of utopia, okay. like the, I mean, close to the AOC or, um, Bernie type of idea. 
just progressivism like let's just keep stepping forward the progress and the welfare state and everything's fine you know nothing's right. wrong to them i mean i think everything's uh gravy you know it's a yeah it's a good they're on the gravy train literally you know right, right. so um and they're getting it from both sides kind of because they're they're benefiting from any welfare programs or whatever maybe uh and they're paying their fair share they're paying the california taxes and stuff and uh they're getting the high income and stuff so but but somehow they're still blind to the the sort of or they're they don't have the cognitive dissonance that should i think result from coming down from a 23 story loft apartment and walking out onto the street with strewn with needles and tent cities <laughs> right yeah like that how does that not i mean they see it as like not their problem in terms of homelessness what i what i've uh gotten from a lot of people is like it's it's just not their problem and um it's something the state should fix you know it's not there's no sense of like uh, connection to community and ownership of right the streets and like the uh, well-being of their neighbors and stuff you know well that goes to christopher uh, lash's point that mm -hmm. you know the person who lives in the on the 21st floor mm -hmm. has more in common with the person who lives on the 21st floor in hong kong very than they much do so. with the people that live you know 21 floors beneath them very much so and and i will say um around me in particular i mean this is a personal note but around me in particular um you know i don't interact with that many people who are you know born and raised in the u.s i mean it's at least half people from abroad and who um might actually be the person on the 21st story in hong kong you right know? right right they just happen to be living here or have a, a place here yeah and it's very Your location doesn't matter very You're much part so. of the yeah, global yeah. Mm -hmm. um what i don't want to say elite yeah, because the they're not. You're not. If you live on the 21st floor, you're not an elite. Yeah, yeah. You're <laughs> possibly. I mean, it depends because you know people when they get to that elite status, it's almost like an ethereal because they don't live anywhere in particular. They have just properties here and there and move right, around. All the right, time, right, right. You know? So that's a different kind of thing. They don't live anywhere. Yeah, not permanently. You know, they're moving around, making moves, calling shots. Um, but ultimately, I think it is, it's that, uh, it's the alienation from the product of the work, the impact of the community. And, you know, we're not equipped to perceive and really understand the, that, that scope of global industrial. No. And especially information age, it's just so fast and so wide that we really can't even. So it's almost like just. And I, I, I yeah. think this problem started. I mean, I don't want to say it started back in the 60s, but I think it really became noticeable in the 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 seeing the Vietnam War televised, hmm. taking in that information that people here weren't really able to process mm -hmm. because it's happening on the other side of the world. You're getting a 2D representation of it, mm -hmm. very selectively filtered. Right. And you saw what happened with that. There was a massive protest movement against the Vietnam War that ultimately failed. Like right. it didn't, I mean, it, I'm not going to say it didn't have a hand in getting us out of Vietnam, mm -hmm. but let's be honest, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger did what they thought Richard Nixon and Henry, Kiss, Henry Kissinger should, should do. They mm -hmm. didn't, they weren't listening to the hippie movement. Right. And the hippie movement ultimately failed miserably. Yeah. So like, I, I think what, what I'm trying to say is that 
the more we get information from around the world. I really noticed it in the '90s when you would see the um, like the Suzanne Summers and um, what's her name, not Joan By the the singer Sarah McLaughlin, like okay. yeah, standing around in Africa with all these children with flies all over them, going yeah. for a dollar a day. You can feed a village. Yeah. And you're like, and I mean, the people did that. They bought into that. I don't know if that dollar, their dollars actually went to that village or not. There's right. no way of knowing that. But like, yeah. it was just, you You sort of had this sense of, I see the suffering. I feel compassion and empathy mm-hmm. for those suffering. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not real. It's you don't you're not actually seeing the suffering. You're not actually feeling the su- you're not smelling the ordure. or you're not in the mud with these yeah, yeah. impoverished yeah. people. You're just sort of looking down from a from a great height. Yeah. And throw it flicking a grain of rice them. Like Yeah. It's like an abstraction. Yeah. And you see and I think a lot of the I don't know. I've, I've t- I talk with so many like very you know neoliberally consensus people, mm-hmm. and when you talk to them, if you get them whittle them down to a certain point, yeah, where you're where you where you're like for example with the COVID thing, I was talking to a guy who was saying you know I think I my my thing with the vaccine and the masks and the lockdown is that I just care, I just care that people don't die from this. And yeah. I was like, no, you don't. And yeah. I just told him point blank. I was like, you do not care about some hypothetical grandmother yeah. in northern Pennsylvania that you have this vague like idea of. You're yeah. just robotically saying that. Well, it's There's like, something else. It's kind of a meta. I, I, I've observed this in some uh, friends of mine, actually. It seems like a kind of meditative exercise of compassion. It's almost like I call uh-huh. it arm, armchair compassion or something. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting back and like going to a place mentally and emotionally where you really care. And it's actually a very beneficial and I think healthy practice to do that. But it actually, it informs your actions in a way that is, I feel a little bit out of touch. I mean, exercising that compassion. I think meditation is perfectly fine and healthy. I think practicing compassion Mm -hmm. in a real and visceral way. Yeah. Like with other people in your immediate vicinity mm-hmm. is a very good thing. I don't think meditatively practicing compassion <laughs> towards some void yeah. is, I think well, that's actually very, just like you said, out of touch. It's, it's Yeah. Well, it kind of bleeds in, it kind of like bleeds into some, I think, unrealistic kind of out of touch views and, and just uh, almost towards more like policy and stuff. Like if that so permeates your being, then I feel like it, uh, it informs things so heavily that you start to get these kind of out of touch, like let's have a welfare state and open borders. You know, it's like, right. Right. Eh, or, really I mean, like, you know, like you're the, the 21st floor dweller in San Francisco, mm-hmm. who's 26, unwilling to 26th floor, 26th floor. Well, we're not, don't give away your location. Um, <laughs> You don't want a 747 flying into the uh, <laughs> Sounds no. fun. The um, but the their 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 inability almost. No, I wouldn't say their refusal, but their inability to actually go out on the streets and volunteer or 
you know, whatever, whatever the solution may be, whatever the, the problem may be in that community, actually trying to solve that problem, they would rather that just be deducted from their paycheck mm-hmm. and someone else take care of it. Yeah. And I understand that not everybody has the time to mm-hmm. go volunteer at a food bank or what the fuck ever. But, mm-hmm. I mean, actually, no. I mean, yes, everyone does have that time. They do have the time, yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise they're skiing and stuff like that. <laughs> right, but, right. you know, I, I, I'll tell you, I do encounter... On fake snow. Yeah, yeah. Imported snow and so... Or created snow. Yeah. Um, they There are a lot of people who volunteer. Uh, volunteering at, like, uh, kind of homeless... Um, facilities and like soup soup kitchens for lack of a better term and all that it's actually pretty common um so and you know what i was talking about earlier people coming in from out of state or out of country suddenly finding themselves with three to ten times more disposable income than they would have had otherwise uh the effect that that has is a very uh high rate of uh donation informally just directly to people whether it be food or cash or whatever right right directly to homeless people there well how about this yeah their compassion is misdirected or um like you said it leads to bad policy or or out of touch policy for sure so for example maybe the compassion the truly compassionate thing to do if you spent time with the homeless people in San Francisco mm-hmm. is to realize, wow, many of these people are severely mentally ill. Mm-hmm. The measures that we have to take to keep these people safe are not exactly what you would want to do. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying we need to lobotomize them and stick them in, yeah, I was wondering in where a bunch of cells, but where you go like, with that. <laughs> well, I mean like some compromise, like we were talking on the last podcast, some compromise between Unleashing them on the streets to fend for themselves Mm -hmm. and institutionalizing them in giant state mental asylums and drugging them up and keeping them docile. Like there has to be, there has to be a middle ground. That's what we used to do. Letting them live on the streets is what we do now. Mm -hmm. But if, if you really want to be compassionate and you really actually care about this situation there, you have to, we have to figure out something else. Well, I mean, so an interesting uh, thing in the in the air over there is like there are, you know so many engineers and I think there are so many problem solvers in general, right? So they problematize everything, and so right. homelessness is a problem to be solved. And uh, I really wonder where that runs up to limitations. Like you can't solve a person's life. You can't so- people can't solve their own own lives, much less like be solved by externally from someone else. Right. So there's some kind of a limitation on that. And I feel like at some point, um, I don't know. I'm not sure what the solution is, or if there is a solution, or if it's even a problem in that sense that can be, you know, modeled as a problem and then solved. I mean. People are people. You need to be friends and support in all in all the ways you can, but the caveat has to be that it may be to no positive end whatsoever. That's entirely possible. I think in the case of all humans, like you could get you could set up a child with all the material needs. All, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, and then well, they I'm but you're saying like you, there ha- you can. I, I don't yeah. know. I guess I'm. I I I, I don't think. Homelessness, like I agree with you, homelessness may not necessarily be a problem to be solved. Uh-huh. But tent cities and people living in filth 
under the opulence of the wealthiest, some of the wealthiest people in the world is unsustainable. Well, you have so to, in that sense, it is a problem. Well, if you ask yourself, right? you have to ask yourself, why do, why do homeless people tend to live nearer to wealthy communities? It's not some kind of like cosmic irony or like some kind of psyop or something. It's literally just those people are more likely to give away things very liberally. Well, no, 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 no. I think it's that wealthy people have amenities all around them and homeless people just go to where... Well, I'll tell you, in my case... You you can live on the street and you can figure out how to get a sandwich at some point during the day. Whereas if you were homeless and you lived out in Cedar Hill, Tennessee, you would freeze to death and be eaten by bobcats. That's another aspect, the weather. Um and in that area, the weather happens to be a certain way, and there happen to be a lot of upper uh, socioeconomically positioned people. But I think it's... But like what I'm saying is if when the rich all move out to... When the cities become unsustainable mm-hmm. and the rich all move out to the, the woods of Montana, sure. the homeless people are not going to follow them to the woods of Montana. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I'm saying. You have, a, you have, a high, you have high foot traffic. You yeah. have a lot of people yeah. walking around, a lot of tourists. You have a lot of money. Um, and another thing about my area is there are a lot of facilities to support homeless people as well. Right. So there's kind of a satellite effect around those places. I, I took a look at a map of where all the homeless shelters and stuff were, and I was like, oh, that's why there are a lot of homeless people, because there are a ton of homeless shelters sure. and facilities for overdoses and stuff like that in my area. Yeah. And it's like, um, I mean, if I'm on So you're the saying edge, we're having a methadone party there next month? <laughs> well, you saw in, I don't know if you saw it in British Columbia, I think, in Vancouver, they were, um, the government was literally giving out like clean uh, substances, like I think cocaine, heroin, and meth, uh, just because there was, there's kind of a, I don't know, an epidemic of uh, people putting fentanyl and stuff right, in those right. and killing people. And I mean, you can feel either yeah, way about I mean, it. It's, I, that's, that's, and that's where we start to get into this weird, I don't know, biomedical mm-hmm. role that the state is playing where it's like, do you, do we take progressivism to the point where we're feeding people's addictions mm-hmm. in order to keep them from dying from their addictions? Oh, I see. Like, Keeping them alive at all costs or whatever. Exactly. Like That's that, yeah. what Foucault yeah. initially laid out in his biopower mm-hmm. uh, scheme was like, we've gone from the king's ability to take your life and mm-hmm. the state's ability to take your life if you trans transgress mm-hmm. to, hey, we're going to keep you alive at all costs. And if you commit some sort of infraction... We're going to put you away and right. keep you the fuck alive, like in a prison or in, a, in an asylum. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, it's, I mean, it's, it's because you want the, you want the productive capacity to continually increase. You don't want to take a body out of circulation if it can, well, you know, if it can make some cheap sneakers. Well, yeah, I don't see that as being quite though. The well, that definitely happens. That's definitely like a path that this kind of a result of this general trend in in society or civilization. But I think um, even more so, it's just like this kind of relentless, one single-minded compassion that is like um, 
kind of the overbearing maternal instinct to at all cost first of all numb or just do away with all pain and suffering and then death is the ultimate pain and suffering so just at all costs don't let anyone ever die ever of of it reminds me of march 2020 yeah right exactly So if, yeah, right, there's a... Well, I'm glad you said maternal instinct, because we've said this on the pod before, that we, yeah, Yeah. our society, like the, I I see the neoliberal consensus as a very feminized way of, it's like, I mean, we talked about like you clear out a space Mm -hmm. for people to play in. Sounds like a fucking playground, doesn't it? Right. And all the moms are sitting around on the edge watching everyone play. And if somebody gets too rough, they got to come in. They got to step in and take the kid out. Yeah, no one can learn their own uh, lessons. Yeah. And we're all being treated like kids. Right. And you can't let... Yeah, for example, if you're a... I mean, and I don't don't mean to sound... What... Uh, crude, like unfeeling, mm-hmm. but like if you're a junkie who has been given this massive state, there's a there's a massive state infrastructure that you that is at your disposal to get out of your situation, mm-hmm. but because you're in the throes of addiction, you you haven't been able to do it, and you happen to suck down some fentanyl one night and die. I don't look at that as a failure of society. Mm. I don't look at that as a like a problem that should concern me, for example. Okay. It yeah. is sad. Yeah. And yeah. yes, maybe there were a lot of societal failures that led up to that person becoming a junkie. Yeah. But once it's at that point, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think the solution is, well, give them, give them clean cocaine. Right. Yeah. We'll yeah. give them clean cocaine and keep them addicted and alive. Like, you know, yeah. cause at that point you're just keeping a zombie alive. I feel like a lot of that is somehow motivated out of this just internal um, uh, impulse to uh, appear to be a good person. And mm-hmm. it's like the impulse, the dopamine kick you get. It's like that same kind of mechanism on a different scale or in a different context where you have an impulse to hold the door for someone to be like an upstanding, empathetic person, you know? Right. So, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at is like, you could set someone up with the perfect route to recovery or path in life as a child and people aren't machines, you know, right. or, or they're sufficiently complex where you cannot predict what the result will be. Right. So if you fail 70% of cases, I mean, you could say at least you help 30%, but I don't think the state is the approach, you know, no. it's, it's local, it's community. I think that is the real sustainable way to yeah. use a, I'm a big advocate for lo- what I call localism. I don't know if yeah. that's if that's some archaic political theory that <laughs> happens to be associated with Nazism. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not aware of the fact. I'm not advocating for that. But um, <laughs> let your lawyer speak for you there. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah. I, I. And we're gonna. We'll get into that on the next episode. I've got a guy coming on. Yeah. To discuss the role of communities. Um, before we go, I did want to touch on this maternal thing. Mm. There is a spate of, I forget what the trend is called. It's a, it's a hashtag that's on TikTok hmm. that has been encouraging um, bad behavior yeah. among, I think, I think it's like middle schoolers and high schoolers, okay. where it's, it's one of those TikTok challenges. And in this case, it's children um, like 
maiming the toilets in the bathroom at school or like stealing the soap dispensers from the walls oh, okay. and shit like that. Interesting. Now, in my day, this was done. Mm-hmm. It wasn't posted on TikTok. All right. But it was done. And, mm-hmm. and the, the administrators were just like, God fucking damn it. <laughs> Right. They just they were pissed off. You might get suspended from school for a day or two if mm-hmm. you were caught like throwing a cherry bomb down the toilet. In my dad's day, you were like that was just that was just built built into the cake. Yeah. They I just know. knew that was gonna happen. Yeah. The reaction to this TikTok trend has been I, I believe one of the this was in Murphy nah, I wanna say Murfreesboro. Might have been even more local than that. It might be in Robertson County, where they said they were going to use, they were going to prosecute these kids to the fullest extent of the law. Wow, for vandalism. Yeah, interesting. Now that is the most, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, I think fascism can come from the left or the right. Mm-hmm. I think fascism can come from a feminine orientation or a masculine orientation this is fascism coming from mama yeah this is fascism coming from mama mama fascism mama mama nanny state yeah nanny state essentially Mm. you've gotten to the point where you are so intolerant of disbehavior in youth Mm -hmm. which is one of the things that characterizes youth yeah exactly bad behavior yeah that you are going to criminally like brand these children as criminals. Right. If you thought saying that a kid was too hyperactive, so we're going to dope them up with ADHD medications back in the 90s and 2000s, if you thought that was bad, yeah. well, guess what? They're going off to alternative school now. The The school-to-prison pipeline is being like opened wide up. Right, yeah. And at that point, especially with a minor, it's uh, easily arguable that it's more the fault of the parents than it is the child themselves. Well, it's... It, the only difference between my childhood and what's going on now mm-hmm. is that they're being encouraged There's by an, online influencers. It's an incentive structure. And yeah, yeah and then they're posting it mm-hmm. on these, like, I don't know why, like, why would you, like, that was part of the joy of being bad. Right, yeah. Was that it was like this sort of secret you had with your friends. True, yeah. I mean, I could see, I mean, it's like world star hip hop, you know, you get the glory of the online vir- virality right, right, right. and stuff. Um, yeah. Fighting those kind of set up incentive structures that arise like that with government is, uh, it doesn't seem very effective and it definitely seems like it's setting up the people if they get something on their criminal record or get into a uh, kind of a criminal pipeline, it's uh-huh. uh, probably going to end up doing at least as much harm as it does good. Um, it is, well, it starts to, it starts to put them, it starts to make, um, how would you call it? Like you start to pepper their record with contact points, right? At which, by which the nanny state or the, you know, the fascist state can yeah get into their lives. I don't think necessarily entangle them. I don't necessarily think the idea of just any type of quote unquote punishment is the actual error i think it's the the manner of the punishment like this is where i really am actually interested in the idea of like retributive justice and stuff where Uh 
So say someone uh, in Japan, this is a big thing too, actually, to go back, uh, and I think all over the world. Like, like if you were people with canes, <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. So, for example, uh, just a more creative form of punishment. Punishment w- used very widely. So, right. say you mess up a bathroom, you know, um, your punishment should be to clean bathrooms or to just fix that particular bathroom. Sure, that's all. Just uh, force someone to do that, you know, or coerce them with the powers of the state. Right, and that, honestly, that's right. not even being creative at this point. Like, that's yeah, like, no. my, like, my parents had to do shit like that. I yeah. had to do shit like that. And it was informal uh, right. decades back. You right. Know? It wasn't even necessarily a policeman doing it. It was your, the person who owned the establishment or whatever, you know. We had a kid, um, I, I play at a little country church out here, mm-hmm. and we had some kids. It's out in the middle of nowhere, so like kids like to go there and smoke weed or whatever in the parking lot because it's sure remote and apparently some of them van like broke some windows Mm -hmm. at the church yeah and they their parents as their punishment made them come to church for like two months there sure and they were like and that's i mean that's (laughs) a good form of humiliation yeah is like everyone at this fucking church that you don't even know is now looking at you like hey stranger Right. What's your deal? Why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> you we talk we about know it. what you did. Force people to interact shit. with other people. Yeah. Right. That's something that is, uh, you know, I mean, another negative impact of uh, technology. I feel like it sounds like a cliche and like a meme at this point, but interacting with some people, it's like you obviously haven't been socialized. <laughs> right. In the same way that right. older people have. Or, I mean, it's not entirely just generational, but it is it is a thing. No, I mean, I notice a difference between, like, my oldest sister's generation, like Gen X, Mm. who are able, like, in most situations are able to interact with other people. Yeah. And then my generation that was raised on video games Mm -hmm. are a little bit squirrelier. GTA, yeah. And then the people that are raised on tablets. TikTok. TikTok. Like, almost despondent sometimes. (laughs) Like, you'll say, hey, how's it going? And they just sort of stare at you like you're a... An alien. Yeah, yeah. Or they say something completely, yeah, irrelevant or... Yeah. Yeah. I found there's a lot of, like, uh, those kind of extreme views, too. It's like... um, And they're just really tacitly, like, assumed to be, you know, normal, stuff like that. And I think that it it definitely reflects a a disconnect with community and society and... Yeah, it's, it's strange to, to witness. Well, we'll talk about community and society next week. The, this week has been brought to you by the letter N for <laughs> neoliberalism. Right. Um, I want everyone to go over to the Patreon and please subscribe. Patreon.com slash radio. We're trying to grow our audience. We are growing our audience, but we're not growing our production value. <laughs> and that is because we don't have any money. So... Um, please get over there. It's like three bucks a fucking month. Like you're consuming free content, which should be illegal, but you're doing it. Maybe you should be on Matreon instead of Patreon. Ooh, <laughs> that would get you. Yeah, I wouldn't made. be able to say nearly all the things I did <laughs> on this one. Right. Uh, Nathan, thank you for coming on. Do you have anything you want to plug? Um, no. He was about to make a butt joke there. Maybe, maybe in the future we'll see. Yeah. Well. Uh, thank y'all for listening and go deface your local public bathroom. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> <laughs>